Well, I want to start with a question. Where do you find your worth, your identity, and your meaning in life? Now, this week I've been uh, dominated by two main thoughts. Uh, the first one is I recently heard about uh, a breakthrough, so um, technological development with, with eye care and with glasses. It's fascinating. This new innovation has significant potential to actually impact millions of people, especially those that are in third world countries. I'm going to show you a picture of, of these glasses here. These glasses here, if you, um, maybe you've seen these before. These are not for fashion, by the way, but these are for great function. Rather than needing an eye doctor somewhere, rather than needing a prescription or multiple changes of glasses as your eyes worsen, there are these knobs on the side that simply you adjust and they come into focus. Next slide. So it's working well with children. Again, they're not necessarily for fashion, but for function. But next slide, especially in third world countries. And so it's, a, it's been a wonderful thing. And churches around the country are getting behind this as, as missions of donating eyeglasses to help people in third world countries as medical missions. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So I've been thinking about that a lot this week. And the second thought is that now that we're full in with the fall, I've been thinking a great deal about our church. And I always do this every fall. I think about our church as we're back and there's energy and the, the roots of our story and the original vision of why we started Renew come back. Uh, Megan and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary this week, and we did something we love uh, to do. We went canoeing yesterday down the Schuylkill River uh, Trail and Lock 60, the canal path there. And as we were doing that, and we stopped for lunch along the way, um, as we were doing that, we just talked about the sacrifice and what that was like and how scared to death we were and how excited we were to start uh, Renew, what it took to step out and start not just us, but with a faith-filled team of committed people who are committed to the vision that were willing to sacrifice to say, yes, we believe this and what we're doing. Why do we exist? What we're after? Why we do this thing called Renew? And so this morning, I'm taking these two dominating thoughts of these glasses and thinking a lot about Renew, and I basically want to put them together. So the intent of this morning is to simply adjust the glasses uh, for us as a, as a church so that we can see more clearly and more sharply who Jesus is, what he's about, what his mission is, and why we seek to join him in that. Well, I'm grateful for my friend John Tyson, who's up in New York City, who helped me see some perspective. In some ways, he kind of adjusted the glasses of this passage that was just read from Philippians chapter 3. I want to give you a little bit of background here, and so I want to encourage you, if you don't have your Bibles open and you have one, uh, look at that passage in Philippians 3 that Mike uh, just read. I'm going to give a little bit of background because it's going to make sense to bring some, some adjustment to our own glasses to sharpen that view of what Paul's talking about. So Paul planted a, a house church in, the city, in a city called Philippi. Now, Philippi is along the northeastern coast of current-day Greece. And as he went, he was accompanied by Silas and Timothy and maybe even Luke, uh, possibly Luke, who, who authored um, the book of Acts, of course. Now, many believe that this was Paul's first time that he ever preached in Europe. And he also, uh, the New Testament tells us, he visited the city of Philippi on at least three different occasions. And the Jewish religious leaders, they would follow Paul around and what they would do wherever he went, and they would try to pervert his teachings about Jesus. They'd come behind him and they would say, yeah, yeah, Jesus is good, but they would also try to add layers of legalism and of moralistic hoop jumping, jumping to the process. 
And they would say, yeah, yeah, Jesus is good, but you got to make sure you do this and you, you participate in that. And if you don't, and God really doesn't love you, and you probably really don't love God. And Paul writes a letter to this house church in Philippi, in current-day Greece, not from the halls of an esteemed institution or the quiet solitude of his study that's lined with books, but from a dark and cruel jail cell in Rome. He's in Rome in a jail cell writing this letter to this house church in Philippi. Now, my family and I, after I graduated from high school and before leaving for college, uh, my family and I took a, a, a trip to the Mediterranean, and we had one day to see Rome, which is impossible to see Rome in one day, but we tried. We saw a lot of things, but the most inspiring and moving thing that we had a chance to do was to climb down into the cave, the jail cell, where they believe Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. Unbelievably moving experience. So with this background in the forefront of our minds, I want to unpack uh, this passage. So keep your Bibles open if you have them. And if you look right in verse 1, Paul's saying, hey, you've heard this before. I'm not going to tell you anything new, but this is too important. And this is for your own safeguarding. This is for your own protection that I remind you again of these things. And maybe that's what you're going to feel this morning through this teaching of reminders. But it's reminding us of what's most important. In verses 2 and 3, Paul talks about this idea of circumcision. Now, some of you are quietly asking yourselves a very, very valid question right now. And it's, what in the world does the foreskin of male genitalia have anything to do with faith in Jesus? And to the Jews, this was a really big deal. The act of circumcision of a, a male on the eighth day of his life, a baby boy... This was incredibly important. It was significant. It was a sacred spiritual symbol to us. It's not necessarily a sacred spiritual symbol. It's much more on a medical side today. Um, but it wasn't just a medical procedure. It was a big deal. It was marking and devoting this child to God forever. In fact, um, just so we understand circumcision, let me show you a couple. I'm totally kidding. I would not do that to you all. Uh, in that, but it showed that the world, if you were a Jew, that you were marked for something different. It was part of your Jewishness. It's what made you a Jew. In other words, they believed that they were a cut above everybody else. Sorry for that really bad pun. Um, but that they were devoting also the future generation of Jews, their seed, where their seed would be coming from, of already doing a child dedication even when the child was a child for their children one day. That they were marking that, that God, these are yours. These are your children. So this was a big deal spiritually in a way that it's not that big of a deal for us today in our culture. But the religious leaders in Paul's day were saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus is good, and that's a good thing, but you better make sure you're doing these other hoop-jumping activities like circumcision, because if not, I'm not sure you really love God, and if you don't really love God, then maybe God really doesn't love you. And what made Paul upset, what he needed to correct, was the idea that, no, 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 Jesus is enough. That it's subtraction by addition. You add to Jesus, you subtract from his power. And that's what Paul's getting at in this passage. In the first century, Jews called the Gentiles dogs. It was a very derogatory term. But now Paul turns on his own Jewish religious leaders that are trying to mar what he's talking about regarding Jesus, the morally pure religious leaders of the day who are Jews. And instead of calling the Gentiles dogs, he now calls these Jewish leaders dogs. I mean, those are fighting words. Those are fighting words coming from Paul's mouth. Again, they thought Jesus 
was good, but they needed to still rely on the law and their own religious observances, these religious leaders felt, as a way of proving their own righteousness and goodness and morality based on their performance. And Paul said, we're going to have none of that. It's none of that. And he came to correct them. He wanted to be really clear. He even gets very personal. And he said, let's be honest here. If anybody has a right to prove their goodness through the righteous and moral performance, it's me, guys. It's me. He said, look at my resume. It's impeccable. It's impeccable. And if it's based on resume, then I'm at the top of the class. He even goes on to say a pretty bold statement. He said, when it comes to keeping the law, I am faultless. I have not made a mistake. He would have been the most religious person you have ever met. Think of how Paul would have answered that question that we started with in our teaching. Where do you find your identity and your worth and your meaning? His family of origin, says, is the tribe of Benjamin. It was not the most elite tribe, but it was very respectable. His religious expertise, he talks about that, his education. He was part of a well-respected rabbinical school where he trained some of the most famous rabbis learned there. It was one of the most famous desirable schools to train to become a rabbi. He had a vision for righteousness. He was so passionate about the law and keeping it pure that he persecuted Christians in order to keep that law pure. In fact, he, be, he became so influential in his righteousness, he even received uh, a letter he received a letter um, of special permission from the Jewish high priest to be able to arrest and persecute followers of the way, that is, Christians, who were, in his mind, perverting the law because he was about purity. And that's how influential this guy was. But something amazing happened, and everything Paul found identity and meaning and value and hope and security in his life changed when he had this life-altering interaction with Jesus and to see Jesus for who he really was. And Paul had a change of the economy of his own heart. Can you imagine the horrific moment in your life where you've built your entire life on one thing and in one moment you realize that it's worth nothing at all? This is the crisis in Paul's life. This is Acts 9 of going to do what he believed was honoring God only to be confronted with that to realize what he was doing was dishonoring God and God got a hold of his life, and he changed. He meets Jesus, and something fundamentally shifts and changes in his own heart. You know, if you think about our lives today, there are all sorts of spiritual circumcision equivalents for us today. It may not be a medical procedure on male genitalia, but we have the same attitude as these original uh, Jewish leaders had. Places where we say, you know, Jesus is good. He's really good. But if we really want to love God, and God really wants to love us, then we better jump through some of these additional hoops. We better go through this, and we better do that, and don't forget that, and you better to be a good Christian, you better... And we have that same attitude today. And we also value the same things in our culture that Paul did in his previous life. They're just named differently. Values, our background, our reputation and notoriety, educational degrees, relational connections, professional expertise, and recognition in our field, maybe deep pockets so that we're assured financial security, power. These are all things that Paul believed were a part of what made him great. 
in the early part of his life. And Paul says to us in this passage, and he says to us even today, don't do it. Don't fall into the trap. Don't fall into the trap by measuring your life on these things that will leave you bankrupt in the end. There's something better than striving for perfection, Paul says, than through religious hoop jumping and performance and right living. And that's what I love about Scripture. Scripture is both a mirror and a window. Now, we've seen it as a window into Paul's life, who he was before, and then he meets Jesus, and who he is now. And there's lots for us to learn when we look through the window, his radical reorientation around Jesus and what that looked like in his life. But it's also a mirror where we hold it up to our own lives for us to see who we really are. And the truth is, as we read the scriptures, that we all need a reorientation of the economy of our hearts. We too live in a very legalistic culture. And here's what I mean by the legalistic culture that we live in. This culture we live in demands that we perform or we have no value at all. The metric of value and success in our culture is this, that you fit in by getting ahead. You fit in by getting ahead. That's the lie that our culture tells us. It's the economy of success and performance. A few months ago, I got a call from, from an old friend who was a former neighbor of ours and from a previous life. Uh, not a follower of Jesus, but he called me out of the blue and, and he said, uh, hey, I, I, I'm engaged and I was wondering if you would be willing to marry us. And I said, well, why don't we get together? And so I sat down with he and his fiancee and, and I started, I said, tell me why, knowing you don't necessarily have a religious background and this doesn't interest you, why do you want me to do your wedding? And he said, because you're the only pastor I know who's not weird. You're the only normal pastor I know who I don't think will make it awkward and embarrass us, so would you consider it? And so I considered it, and it's been a great opportunity to talk about things we never would have had an opportunity to do, so they've opened their lives up to me. And we met just a few weeks ago, and um, I was, as I was meeting with them over this time of premarital counseling, it was very clear that money is his idol. And he wouldn't use that language, he wouldn't call it that way, but money is clearly his idol. Here's what I mean. He told me during that meal, he said, I'm 33 years old, and I'm a failure. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I set a goal that I would have a million dollars in assets by the time I turned 30, and I'm, fa I'm a failure. And he's getting married next month. And his fiancée is wondering, rightfully so, if she's more important than his drive for money. And she's not sure. And I had to lean in very carefully and tell him, I said, if this isn't under control, this will wreck you. See, he's stuck in believing that the only thing that he can do in life is to live into the legalistic economy that says, if you don't get ahead, you don't fit in. And it's this economy of success and performance of legalism that is trapping him and could be squeezing him out of other things that are much more important. You know, in 2005, uh, the popular uh, no American novelist David Foster Wallace delivered a famous commencement speech to the graduates of Kenyon College. In fact, some believe it was the great, one of the greatest commencement speeches ever given at a college in America. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's worth looking up on your own time. But I want to read a paragraph from it because it's, it's uh, unbelievably powerful. He says this, 
Because here's something else that's weird but true. He's not a believer, by the way. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. These are beautifully truthful words, and they're also terribly tragic words on a personal level level for David Foster Wallace. Eight years ago tomorrow, David Foster Wallace went into his garage. He arranged the manuscript of his next book, which was due to his publisher. He wrote wrote a two-page letter to his family, and he hung himself from the patio rafters. So I must ask, what are we worshiping? What is it that we actually worship? What is at the economy of your own heart? What are your loves and longings? Paul's at the top of his game. He thought his loves and longings were perfectly met. And his life was radically changed when he realized the ladder of his life was leaning on the wrong building. He lost everything that he had ever known, and yet in that very moment he gained more than he ever could have imagined. The truth is this. If you have a small view of Jesus, you're going to have a small amount of passion for him. And you will have a daily and ongoing war of competing values in your own heart in every day of your life. So we have a small view of God and what's available to us because we forget that Christianity is not about a set of principles or causes or doctrines, but it's about a relationship with a person. And when this happens, when we realize, when we have a low view of who Jesus is, we settle. We settle. And what does that look like? We settle. We do things like spend every night watching Netflix and convincing ourselves that this is a compelling and exciting life to live. Reality TV captures our imaginations because we long for diversion and escape from the small reality of our own lives. But the great thing is we have a a large view of of who Jesus is. It will completely reorient our lives for the better. It will wreck us and it will save us at exactly the same time. And Paul makes this bold claim in verse 8, if you see. He says, everything from my past is worthless in light of meeting the person of Jesus. And he has this line. He said, I consider it garbage that I may gain Christ. I consider it rubbish. Some of you have translations that may may say trash or rubbish or garbage. Some, uh, Some translations even say excrement. How many of you have a dog? Any dog lovers, owners in the room? All right, not that many. Wow, kind of surprising. 
How many of you have dogs that when you're eating dinner wait under the table because they're just waiting for something to fall off the table? Anybody? All right. How many of you have really clean kitchen floors because of that? <laughs> right? Yeah. The, the interesting thing here is the, the original word here that Paul's using for garbage or rubbish, or rubbish is two words put together. It's the word dogs and it's the word throw. Very interesting here. Something worthless enough to throw them to the dogs. Remember, originally, Paul called the Jewish leaders dogs. So he's continuing the metaphor here. So think of that. He's basically saying, everything from my past, the ladder that was leaning on the wrong building, I've realized were dog scraps. What an image, huh? They were so worthless, they're not even worth eating. And I'm just going to throw them to the dogs. Like no one else, Paul had mastered living under the old covenant. And yet he discovered something better, something greater, and he knew it wasn't based on his performance of the economy of his heart dictated by the culture of his day. And he realized it was grace. It wasn't what he had done. It's what had been done to him and for him. It was an invitation to receive, not something to achieve. Carter, um, earlier this summer, I had a, a chance to speak at a camp in Michigan to a group of high school students. They've asked me back a few different times, and uh, I love going back. Well, my family came with me last year, and uh, Carter loved it, just as the speaker's family kind of watching everything, and he said, Dad, I want to I wanna go next year. Can I be a camper with the elementary school week? And we said, okay, you know, Michigan's pretty far away. We've, we, he's had sleepovers and stuff, but, you know, seven days, no contact away from mom and dad, nine years old. This is kind of a big jump for us. You know, we said, are you sure you can do it? Oh, yeah. He didn't know anybody. You know, we're states away. You know, how is this going to work? And mom and dad were fine, I just assure you. But we were curious. And we picked him up, and he loved it. He loved it. He was already talking, can I go back next year? He just had a terrific time. Well, the day after picking him up, uh, we were on vacation because we took the trip out, and we went camping in the Warren Sand Dunes in uh, western Michigan. So early in the morning, the next morning, we hiked to the top of this huge sand dune. He brought his journal and his Bible and a pen from camp. And I said, buddy, I want you to just tell me everything he wrote down from the speaker from the week. And so I'm thinking, you know, he's going to have doodles and drawings. That guy took like 30 pages of notes, nine years old. I've I got to admit, I was kind of impressed. And one of the things he said, he's like, Dad, all right, turn in your Bibles. You've got to read this. And Dad, okay, now read this passage, and let me tell you what the speaker said. I was really impressed. I wanted to write the speaker and say, good job. Thanks as a dad. But one of the things he said, he said the speaker told an analogy. He gave the analogy, and he said God's grace is like all of us getting on the edge of the shore and trying to throw a rock across the Pacific Ocean. He said, some of us aren't really good and will only throw a couple feet. And you get a Major League Baseball player, and, and he can chuck it, you know, hundreds of feet. But it's such a joke, he said, trying to think that anything in our good performance of throwing a rock would get that rock to the other side of the Pacific Ocean. I said, that's pretty good, buddy. He said, you know, I was thinking when the speaker was talking, we could take that even a little bit more. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's like Jesus is on the other side of that Pacific Ocean who charters a ship and comes and picks us up and then takes us in the ship to the other side of the Pacific and says, hand me your rock. I said, that's pretty good, buddy. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's what Paul realized. He said, 
I can throw it farther than anybody. And when he met Jesus, he realized how big the Pacific Ocean was. And Jesus met him on the road to Damascus with the ship and said, get in and hand me a rock. See, here's the good news. You and I are offered the opportunity to be free from the guilt of religious hoop jumping when we fail and freed from the pride of trying to find our identity in it when we do it well. We're freed from our sin of knowing how ridiculous it is to try to throw a rock across the Pacific Ocean. There's no more pressure to feel like we have to find our worth and our value and our meaning from what the culture says, how good is your arm? It's about the grace of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say about us? He says that we matter to him. You matter to God. If the God of the universe was willing to leverage everything to come in the middle of human history to seek and save you, so you matter a great deal. And then Paul writes this. He says, I now consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He said, I've lost it all, and it was totally worth it. And then in verse 9, he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which is through faith in Christ. He said, my arm was good, but it was not even close to the power of the ship of Jesus. It reminds me of something in Romans uh, chapter 3, and you don't have to turn there, but I love the wording from, of all things, the, the New Living Translation. Now listen to this. This is exactly what Paul's talking about with his, with his throwing arm and with the Pacific Ocean and the ship that Jesus brings him. Paul's writing now to the church in Rome. And he says, We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, and we fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just and declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then? When we've done anything to be accepted by God, no. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. We are made right by choosing to board the ship and putting the rock down. And guess what? It's not only... God's grace, where the economy of our hearts can change. It's also available. That the God of the universe is completely available to us. And because of this availability, 
It's not only an invitation, but it's a challenge. It's a requirement that we reprioritize the longings and loves in our own lives. That we have a different economy. That there's a reorientation that exists. And this is why our church exists, by the way. To be a space for anyone interested in that reprioritizing reality. The reprioritizing of our lives, our cares, our desires by learning, reminding, and practicing a new way of Jesus that's much better and more meaningful and lasting than anything the culture around us tells us is the way we should live. Our church doesn't exist simply to give you more religious information so you feel better about yourself. It's not why we're here. But it's to form us by reorienting our loves and our longings around what matters most because the ship is here and the invitation to join in that ship ride is for us. Well, now that we know that this good news of grace is a reality and we also know it's available, what do we do with that? What is our response to that? I want to give us just four very practical, specific things as I can as we respond to this God who offers this kind of grace and says, put the rock down. All right? I think this is good for us as we lean into the fall that we have these at the forefront of our minds leaning in. Because the fall is always a good time, right? Energy is here. Momentum's here. Um, we're present. There's a rhythm with school again. There's just an excitement of new things. So this can be a really good time for us to think and reflect on the economy of our own hearts. And that's the first thing is to do an assessment, to assess the economy of your own heart with brutal honesty. Assess the economy of your own heart with brutal honesty. What is it that I actually value? You are probably at war internally with your own values on a regular basis, so what is it that you actually value? And to bring those before God and say, God, you need to show me where they're off. Can you affirm where they're right? And when they're not, will you change my heart? Will you change my value system? Will you help me realize where my ladder's leaning against the wrong building? Because our values have to reflect what is right and true. And that's why we spend time regularly in worship and in prayer together. Because there's this mystical, experiential thing that happens. It's a very evident way that it changes our hearts and changes our values when we enter into a time of worship and prayer. Because we're realizing this is the time where we can assess this is the time where we can respond to this God who picks us up in a ship and says, put the rock down. So where is it that you can ask, what is it that I actually love and long for that drives my pursuit of worth, identity, and meaning? That's the first thing, to do an assessment. The second thing is this, and I've got, I've got canoeing on my mind from yesterday, uh, but put the paddle in the water. Put the paddle in the water. You know, if you've done the, the Schuylkill River and then back up the canal, you know that you can actually float for a little bit on the Schuylkill part, but you can't float in the canal. There's no current, right? You've got to be doing the work. So I can, I can coast in the river, but when I get in the canal, if I'm not moving, I'm just sitting there. And some of us are just sitting here. Some of us feel like we're on the river and we're just floating. Whatever the culture tells us to do, we're just going to flow in that way. How do we change that? We cut the water by sticking our paddle in and doing the work. Nobody drifts into a life worth living. Let me say that again. Nobody drifts into a life worth living. And what does it look like for you to go after it this fall? 
based on what Paul's talking about, because Paul went after it because when he, when he experienced the grace of Jesus, it, it wrecked his life, it changed his life, it healed him, and he wanted everybody in, so he put his paddle in the water as often as he could. Go after it this fall. There's a particular area that you want to grow in? Go after it. Have a vision for that. Don't settle for, for spiritual mediocrity in your life. You don't, you don't settle for mediocrity in other areas of your life. Why would you do it in your spiritual realm? Don't settle for spiritual mediocrity this fall. You know, the Moravians up in the Bethlehem, Nazareth, Allentown area, beautiful history. Very different uh, in their founding than, than they are today in terms of their vision. But the original Moravians that came over from Europe, from Bohemia, amazing. Nicholas von, uh, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, which has got to be one of the coolest last names ever. But he comes over and he has this white hot passion like Paul. He realizes it's about God's grace. They want to do everything they can to be faithful to Jesus, to rely on that grace. And, and they're, they care about missions. It's the first group that evangelized America. And they came over. It's this beautiful heritage. They had this wonderful prayer that they would pray regularly as a community, and it was this. Fend off lukewarmness. Lord, fend off lukewarmness. May we fend off lukewarmness with each other. And maybe for some of us, we've grown lukewarm, and maybe for some of us, we need to adopt that Moravian prayer to fend off lukewarmness. And some of you have settled. Don't settle. Don't mail it in for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years. Don't. There's more. Don't settle this fall. Don't settle. See, Paul says that we can strive for the things of God. Stick our paddles in the water with direction and not merely letting the current take us where the current wants to go. Because here's the truth. The compound effect of faithfulness in your life will lead you to another life. And the compound effect of negligence in your life will lead you to another life. So that's, that's the second one. Put the paddle in the water. Here's the, here's the third one. Pursue models and mentors. One of the things that Paul says at the end of this passage in Philippians chapter 3, he says, follow me in my example as I've given you a model, right? More is caught than taught in your life anyway, right? You, you learn by catching what people are doing around you than you do simply by sitting down with a textbook and reading it, right? More is caught than taught. So pursue some of those models and those mentors. And then he writes right after that. He says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Focus your attention on the people that have chosen to emulate their lives around Jesus and follow them. Follow their life. You don't know how to fend off lukewarmness? Find people who have a white-hot passion for Jesus and hang out with them. Read biographies of great people of faith through Scripture, through other great books. You know, podcasts are good, and some of you listen to podcasts, and that's great. But be with others. Be with others. Content is easy, but life is hard. And that's why we need mentors and models that are modeling this faith, this white-hot, passionate faith with Jesus well. And you can stick your paddle in the water and approach people and say things like this. Maybe you think of people here within Renew. You think, hey, you, you know, you seem to have a really deep prayer life, and I want to grow in that. Will you help me with that? I want to learn. Can I spend some time with you? Who can you approach and say, you know, you all are great parents. And, and we're young parents, and we want to be great parents, but you've raised, raised some great kids, and we want to learn how to parent better and raise our children to be world changers who have a passion for Christ and his kingdom. Can, can, we, can you help me? Can you help me do that? Who can you ask in this room? 
Or maybe someone in your house, for house church, you say, you display wisdom in how you live your life. Can you show me how you purposefully pursue and cultivate a life of wisdom on a daily basis? Or maybe you think of someone and you say, you have godly discipline, and I realize I'm not a very disciplined person. In fact, sometimes I'm downright lazy. Will you help me grow in discipline? Can I spend time with you? And can you help me understand what that looks like as a follower of Jesus? Who are those models and those mentors that you can go after? Don't wait for them to come and ask you. Do not wait. Go after them. Take the initiative. What's the worst that they can say? No? Can you handle a no? If yes, then ask them. Ask them. And here's the last one. Use your index finger like John. Use your index finger like John. And John the Baptist was depicted in a lot of famous paintings. I want to show you a couple. This is a Rembrandt's painting of John the Baptist. And a couple others. Next one, a little creepy. Okay. And then even creepier here. And he's always shown with his index finger pointing in a very pronounced way. And if you don't know much about the story of John the Baptist, in the first few chapters of the Gospel of John, people approach John the Baptist and ask, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the Christ? And he says, nope, 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 not me. Not me at all. He said, there's one greater than me. In fact, he's so much greater than I am, I'm not even worthy to get down in the dust and to untie the sandals on his sweaty, dirty feet. That's how great this guy is. And it ain't me, so don't confuse me. And so he points to Jesus. He says, it's, it, it, no, 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 over there, over there. In John 3.30, he has this very line. He says, he, that is Jesus, must become greater and greater, and I must become lesser and lesser. And this isn't just in paintings. I mean, I don't know if you knew this or not. There's actual places that reportedly have the finger of John. Okay? So th this, is, this is in Florence, Italy. You can go to a museum in Florence, and in that little box, it's really creepy, is this, like, index finger of John. Now, reportedly, because you can also go to one in Kansas City. Let me show you a picture. This is one in Kansas City. <laughs> now, we have ten fingers, so there could be ten museums one day, I guess. Maybe they each have one index finger, left hand, right hand. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate whether that's, you know, scientifically accurate or not. But the point is this. When the economy of our hearts are reoriented around Jesus... We get it like Paul, and we know like Paul, we can't keep it to ourselves. And we live by a different economy of our hearts, determined by Jesus and not by our culture. We'll use our fingers like John the Baptist. We won't point to ourselves. We won't blame ourselves when we don't live up to the economy of the culture well. We won't brag about ourselves with pride and condescension when we think we get it right. We have a different economy, and so we point in the other direction. We say, He is greater. Jesus is greater than I will ever be. His ship will get me to the other side of the Pacific Ocean more than my arm will ever be strong enough to throw. And we not only say that of our lives, but then we begin to point other people and say, this isn't just about me, and this isn't open to me, it's open to everybody. And if you think that the stuff in your life is too much to disqualify you from a ship ride, Paul tells us otherwise, so does Jesus. 
and say it is open and available to all. It's why when we come to the communion table, one of the things that we say is if you are here to receive grace and mercy from Jesus, you're welcome at the table. Because all this table is, is a whole bunch of fingers doing this. It's about him. It's about him. Not about us, not about me, not about all the cool things that we can do. The fingers point here. And we're freed from any sort of pride, any sort of pressure, any sort of legalism of our culture that tells us you must fit in by keeping up and getting ahead. You are freed from that. That is the good news of Jesus that Paul talks about. We see in his life in the scripture as a window, and we see it as a mirror now in our own lives of the reorientation that we need. Not just one time for some of you, many of you have made a decision to follow Jesus. This ongoing reorientation of our lives that happens week after week after week. Martin Luther, he got up one time and he preached the same sermon multiple weeks in a row, same text. After a while, the congregation came up to him and they said, uh, you know, Pastor Luther, thank you so much, but we're kind of, we're ready to move on to the next thing. Why do you keep telling us the same thing week after week after week? He says, because you forget it week after week after week. Paul says at the beginning of verse one in chapter three, you know this stuff already, but this is for your own safeguarding and your own protection. So as we lean into the fall, May we be reminded of this. Be, may, we, may we be reminded that it's not the strength of our pitching arm. It's in the power of the ship that Jesus is driving. Let's pray. God, thanks for this passage. Thanks for Paul. Thanks for the way in which he, his life was so radically altered. His life was wrecked and healed and saved and used all within the same moment that we read about in Acts chapter 9. Lord, forgive us when we are prone to have circumcision mindsets of thinking that certain things and moralistic hoop-jumping things will prove our rightness to God. And forgive us when we put our stock and our identity and our meaning and purpose in the things that Paul did, of education or know-how or reputation or power or money. Or we want to be people that are clearly able to be accused by the world around us that our identity and our meaning and our worth are absolutely defined by the reorientation of Jesus who puts our ladder and leans it against a different building. And may we be people that put our paddle in the water and strive in that direction, not out of earning anything from you, but out of a response to our gratitude of having that value system, that economy of our hearts reoriented. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.